The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Where we are, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 19. This book is 28 chapters in our English Bible, and we're just going through section at a time. And we are just to bring you up to speed and set the context, especially if you haven't been with us. The book of Acts, 28 chapters, written by Luke, the physician, Dr. Luke, who lived in the days of the early apostles, the early church, became a friend and an associate of the apostle Paul and even traveled on some of the missionary endeavors with the apostle Paul. And so some of these events in the gospel of Luke are firsthand, I mean, in the gospel, in the book of Acts, as well as Luke, are firsthand uh, things that Luke was able to see in the book of Acts. Uh, much of it Luke wasn't able to see, but he got firsthand reports, including from the Apostle Paul and many other Christians in that day. And then the Spirit of God moved on Luke to compile the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. Kind of they go together, starting with the ministry, the birth of ministry of Christ, and then how uh, the early church began and continued to grow for the first several decades. So the book of Acts begins with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ the beginning of the church, and almost to the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And right now we are in chapter 19. The first 12 chapters are focused on Jerusalem, and then the rest of the book is focused on the ministry of the Apostle Paul. 16 chapters of Paul's ministry as he is the the apostle to the Gentiles. And his goal is to go where Jesus said, to the uttermost parts of the earth, (coughs) excuse me, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul has been doing. So far, we've seen him on two what we call missionary journeys, where most of that time he was going into new territories, planting churches, and preaching Christ in cities, mostly pagan cities, that hadn't heard much about Christianity at all. Now, Paul begins his third missionary journey in chapter 18, so we're at the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, The time frame is about 53 to 55 A.D. This is a good 20-plus years after Jesus left and went to heaven. Uh, We are now 15-plus years into Paul's life as a Christian and his third missionary journey. He's going to go several hundred miles that he's going to travel on this trip. Unique things about the third missionary journey is that most of the time Paul spends in his third missionary journey is in the key city of Ephesus, a major city in Asia in that day. Uh, in the Roman Empire that actually had roots to every other part of the world. It was a hub of world activity in the Roman Empire. So it's a strategic city, so that's why he stays there almost three years, planning a church, raising up a church, raising up leaders. And so that's the emphasis in chapter 18, or actually 19, 20, and 21. We're going to see Paul doing a lot of things in the city of Ephesus, this very important city. Uh, Today's sermon I call Paul on Ephesus. This is kind of the beginning of his third missionary trip. And he's not planting new churches as much as he's visiting Christians and helping them grow. And also helping other churches grow that he planted, including the church at Corinth. So it's a, a distinct ministry. It's more pastoral, even though he's still an apostle, than evangelistic on Paul's part. So here he enters this amazing city of Ephesus. He was briefly there before in Acts 18 in his second missionary journey, just passing through, 
And because he was a Jewish rabbi, but he was also a Christian, he was allowed to speak in the synagogue there in chapter 18. Briefly preached and taught a little bit, got a good reception, which was kind of rare because usually when he preached Jesus in synagogues, they wanted to kill him. But it was brief, talked about Christ, the Old Testament scriptures. They were intrigued and they said, please, can you keep teaching? He said, no, but Lord willing, I'll, I'll be back. Traveled a thousand miles home. How many months later? He was allowed to come back by God's will. And that's where he is. Third missionary journey. This time it's not just passing through. He's going to put his stakes down and stay here for almost three years. Let's go ahead and look at Paul's beginning of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Very important. And today's message I call Transitions in the Church. Transitions in the Church. A transition is a time period of change. A transition is a time where things aren't normal. A transition is a time of a cross between continuity and discontinuity, if you know what those big words mean. A transition period is a time that's not normative. And in Acts 19, 1 through 7, we see a transition in the ministry of Paul, but particularly in the church of Jesus Christ, and even more specifically in the history of the world and God's redemptive plan in history. There are transitions going on. In other words, in Acts 19, 1 through 7, there are things that happen that can't be replicated at other periods in history. There are things that happen in Acts 19, 1 through 7, our passage today, that can't be replicated today in our day and age. And it's important to know that when we look at the book of Acts, it's a, a, it chronicles history that happened 2,000 years ago. It's not a, an epistle filled with all these commands, do this, do this, do this. It's story. It's narrative. It's true. And so there aren't a whole lot of commands in the 28 chapters of direct commandments to you and to me as a Christian. Hey, you need to do this as a Christian. So the way we benefit from reading Acts is knowing our history, knowing God's Word, because it is the living Word of God. But at the same time, there are times where we can see principles that are universal, timeless, and binding that do apply to us. We have to discern those. There are also events that happen in the book of Acts that can never be repeated, that never were repeated. Some of the things in Acts happen for the first time in history, as a matter of fact. So we have to be careful and discerning. Not everything that happens in the book of Acts is supposed to be happening for us today in a normative way. This reminds me of two weeks ago. A Christian who's been saved for over 20 years asked me, because we're going through the book of Acts, hey, Pastor Cliff, how come there's all these things that happen in the book of Acts, like amazing miracles from the apostles and others, or just, they said amazing miracles that we don't always see going on today, or how come they're not happening in my life? I don't see these miracles going. That's a great question. That's what I'm talking about. And I just went on to say, well, uh, the time of the book of Acts, the early church was a special time and a unique time in many ways, and there were miracles that happened that haven't been repeated in the last 2,000 years, that are not being repeated in this day and age, and haven't been repeated in my life. There are miracles that I saw in the book of Acts that have never happened in my life. There are things that Jesus is doing. He's, he's making personal visitations from heaven to the Apostle Paul at night on occasion, rarely. That's never happened to me. And so I was just trying to explain to them that the book of Acts is a unique book, and it's a specific epoch in time and history in God's redemptive plan where he did something unique to accomplish a specific goal, to lay the foundation really for the church 
And once the foundation of the church was laid, then from that point on, things would become normative. And this is true all throughout redemptive history. There have been transitions all throughout history from the very beginning, and that's by God's design. So we need to keep that in mind. I mean, just think about it. No, there are... God has brought history about in the last 6,000 years, according to the Bible, through specific epics and eras. And they're all unique and they are all different. There is continuity with some things and there's discontinuity with other things and events that happen. Just think about it. For example, the first era in history was the time before the fall. Adam, God made Adam and Eve. They were real people. And that first era was the time of Adam and Eve before the fall. So there was a, a period in human history where there were humans who lived on the earth Without sin, there was no sin, there was no curse. Can you imagine what that was like? No, we can't. But that was a real era in history. It can't be replicated in this day and age, hasn't been. So that's an example. And then there was a transition, and there was sin and the fall and curse. And then you had a time period from the fall to the time of the flood. And that was an era that was unique in history that will never be repeated. Or it's not like it is today. For example, during the time from the fall to the flood, Unique things that happened and transpired during that redemptive point in history where people lived much longer, up to 900 years. That's, that doesn't happen today, but that really did happen. Before the time of Noah and the flood, there was no rain, apparently. There was water, but not rain like we had it today. So there were just unique things going on. From the time of the fall to the flood, apparently everybody was vegetarian. Humans were vegetarians. There weren't vicious animals. Everybody got along. But things changed after the flood. And so for the next era, from the flood and after the flood to the time of Moses, there were unique things during that epoch. And God said, uh, from now on, lifespan will be shorter. And it was. Noah, who lived to be 900 plus years old, to Moses, 120. So lifespan drastically changed during that era from 2500 B.C. to about 14, for a 1,000 years. Things were unique and different and would never be the same. Shorter lifespans. There was no law. The, the Mosaic law didn't exist until he, uh, Moses came along. The animals became mean. That's, Acts, uh, I mean. that's Genesis chapter 9. After the flood, apparently there was a fear of man that was put into animals and creatures that didn't exist prior to that. The next era in history was from Moses and the giving of the law to the time of Christ. That was a unique period in history. Things happened there that haven't been happening for the last 2,000 years from Moses to Christ. We have the fully given law during the days of Moses, and that reigned by God's requirement all the way up until the time of Christ. The nation of Israel was God's chosen people. The nation of Israel was the entry into the community of God. That was unique. That isn't true for the last 2,000 years. And that wasn't true prior to the coming of Moses. So there was no church from the time of Moses to Christ. Clearly, because Jesus said, I will build the church. Israel was God's community of people. There was no new covenant during the times of Moses to Christ. Then Christ came along and issued a new era. That's where we are in the book of Acts. So there's this transition. So through the book of Acts, you're going to see some carryover and things that were happening during the times of Mosaic law some new things, unique things, things God's doing in order to get this transition fully stabilized that will never be repeated again. And there were things that God had to do and accomplish during the time of transition 
during the time of the apostles in Christ. It would never be repeated again during the church age, but needed to be done to lay the foundation for the church age. For example, Jesus living on the earth. That's not going to be replicated during the church age. Jesus dying and rising again and ascending into heaven. That will never be replicated. Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, that was a one-time event where Jesus began his church formally. That will never be replicated. Uh, the apostles, they were around at the founding of the church. We haven't had apostles for 2,000 years. They laid the foundation of the church, and there were only 12 of them plus Paul. That was unique. The miracles that the apostles did haven't been happening throughout 2,000 years of church history. The way they did with the apostles and with Jesus, that was unique. As a matter of fact, ongoing miracles like in the days of Moses, the 10 plagues and those kind of things, and the miracles that Jesus did and the miracles of the apostles, that was very rare and sporadic throughout the entire history of the world. Rarely did you have this epic of just all kinds of miracles happening. That's an exception, and that was an exception of the early church. So those are just examples of unique things God does through these eras of history, and history is moving forward. History is moving towards a goal. History is moving towards a culmination, and that is the reign of God and his glory through Jesus Christ on the earth, literally. That's why Jesus said when he taught believers to pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That is the goal. Someday Jesus will come in glory in a resurrected body as the God-man and reign literally on the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's where history is going. History is not linear. History is not cyclical. History is progressive, progressive revelation with each era as God seeks to accomplish his ultimate goal, the glory of Christ throughout the earth and the entire universe. That's where we are headed. And so when we come to the book of Acts, we are caught up in this vortex of transition. We're going through the front door of the nation of Israel and the Mosaic law is no longer how you get into God's community. There's a new door. It's Jesus, the door. And all are welcome. You don't have to do animal sacrifices. You have to believe in the gospel and you're allowed to go through that door. That's different. That's new. Believing Jews of Jesus' day, they weren't used to that. They didn't like that. That was scary and foreign to them. Whoa, what are you talking about? But then when they were prompted and enlightened by the Holy Spirit, some of them went through the new door, the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the new era. And so even when you have Jews becoming Christians in the book of Acts, every once in a while you see the transition still going on, where Jews haven't totally displaced or jettisoned all things Jewish. For example, early on, God starts the church. Peter and the apostles, they lead the church. They are born-again Christians, yet they are still Jewish, and each day they're still going to the temple for prayer. They probably still did sacrifices. But they were doing sacrifices knowing that Jesus was the lamb. But they're going to the temple still. You see the Apostle Paul in Acts 18. We saw it. He took, uh, he was fulfilling or obeying the book of Numbers when he made a vow, a Nazarite vow. And he abstained from certain things for probably 30 days or so. And he let his hair grow out. And then he cut off his hair, it says in Acts 18. And then what he was required to do is take that hair, carry it with him, and then he had to go to the temple. Paul did. Even though Paul is a Christian, an apostle, laid the foundation of the church, Paul still goes to temple as he has opportunity. He's still celebrating the main feasts of the year, Jewish mosaic feasts of the year. This is transition. 
He's not being legalistic. He's not reverting back to Judaism. He's a fulfilled Jew. He understands that Christ is the fulfillment of all these, but the temple still exists. It was not wrong for Paul to go to temple. It was not wrong for Paul to make a Nazarite vow. But he had to take that hair, go to the temple, and and burn that hair as a sacrifice to God because that's what numbers required. Some might ask, well, should we be doing Nazarite vows today? Usually teenage boys like to say that because they want to grow their hair out. But I would say, no, you can't. You can't do a Nazarite vow today because you are required to cut your hair and then take it to the temple in Israel and burn it. There is no temple in Israel. And so there were three things that God had to accomplish in order to completely lay the foundation and complete this time of transition as we enter into the church era. Three main important things. Uh, One of those was God was going to get rid of the temple because that would put to rest all this Jewish stuff, all this stuff belonging, the shadows of the Mosaic requirements. God predicted that he would wipe out the temple, and he did for the new era. Another thing that God promised to do that he had to do during this time of transition was commission his apostles to deliver the full counsel of God for the church age and then write it down, and that's called the the New Testament. And that took all the way up until 95 A.D. with the last apostle John. So the temple was destroyed. The apostles got the full doctrine out. And another thing that needed to happen was the gospel had to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the apostles accomplished that over the course of almost the end of the century there with the Apostle John, where the gospel did go out to all groups of people. It went out to the Jews. It went out to God-fearing Greeks who affiliated with Jews. The gospel went out to Samaritans who were half-Jews. And the gospel went out to Gentiles who were non-Jews. Those four people, those four categories, of every human being, including every single one of us, could fall under the category of one of those four groups. And so those three things, the temple, writing the New Testament, getting the gospel out to all four groups, and informally including them into the body of Christ needed to happen. That laid the foundation of the church so that after the, the first century, there's no more apostles, there's no more writing of New Testament, there's no more direct revelation, there's no more temple and Jewish worship. It is now the church age, and that's where we are. But this is a time of transition. Let's go ahead and look at these transitions that are happening still in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Let's uh, look at number one. We'll just take the verses as they come, the first two verses. So uh, verse 1 says of chapter 19, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth. So in the last chapter, we saw Apollos, who was mighty in the Scriptures, became a Christian, befriended Aquila and Priscilla, and then he went to Corinth where there was a new church. It was a mega church. It was about two years old. Lots of people there. Very significant city. And the Spirit of God led Apollos to go there. And Apollos does. He goes to Corinth. He leaves Ephesus, goes to Corinth. And just as Apollos leaves Ephesus and goes to Corinth, Paul lands in Ephesus. So as far as we know, Paul and Apollos never met. At least there's nowhere in the New Testament where they said they met. Paul knows of Apollos. He commends Apollos. Paul planted the gospel. He planted seeds in Corinth, and he says, Apollos watered my seeds. But nowhere does Paul say that he actually met personally with Apollos, but he commended the ministry of Apollos. So uh, here we are in Ephesus. Apollos leaves, and now Paul lands in Ephesus. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, Point number one. 
during the time of transition, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Emphasis here, the promise of His presence. Time of transition, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the upper country. He's coming from the churches of Galatia where he visited, and now he's going west, and he goes through the upper country, and then he finally lands at Ephesus, his key destination, and he's going to do his ministry there. By the way, I don't know if you've ever meditated on this phrase in verse, the middle of verse 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country of Phrygia or Phrygia and Galatia and came to Ephesus. And just Why did Luke write that Paul passed through the upper country and came to, who cares? Why didn't Paul just say, or Luke just say, Paul came to Ephesus? I think this phrase is just amazing. It just verifies this is eyewitness. This is true history. Only somebody who knew that region, knew that geography, would say something like that because it was significant because there were two two ways to go. There was a short cut to get to Ephesus from Galatia, and then there was the long, drawn-out, safer trading road. And Paul took the shortcut. And people who lived in that day knew it as plain as day. It'd be like for us today. Did you take Stevens Creek or 280? Did you take Lawrence Expressway or San Tomas? Well, somebody that talks like that knows the area. And that's exactly what this is. Just a reminder again, this is true history. The Bible is not mythology. It doesn't have errors. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, the geography, the history is exacting. It is without error. It is reliable. 2,000 years prove that. So anyway, Paul finally lands up at Ephesus, and he found some disciples there. Disciples. And we're going to talk about the meaning of disciple in point number three they're also mentioned in verse 7, who these disciples were. And he said to these disciples, by the way, disciple just means uh, follower or student or learner. Judas, who is in hell right now, we know that from the Gospel of John and Zechariah. Judas was a disciple of Jesus. So uh, disciple just means student, follower, learner. There were disciples of the Pharisees. There were disciples of John the Baptist. There were disciples of the Sadducees. There were disciples of Jesus. A disciple, that doesn't mean, that's not synonymous with born-again Christian. Can disciples refer to Christians? Yes. Does disciple always refer to Christians? No. So don't read Christian into that phrase here because that's not what it means. It doesn't mean Paul found some Christians in Ephesus. They, these guys were not Christians. We know that from the context. They're just followers, learners, students of someone. Well, who? Well, John the Baptist, we find out from the the context. And so Paul spends time. He found them. No doubt he talked to them. And Paul discerned, hmm, these guys said they uh, believe in Jesus. They believe in Yahweh. But there's something wrong, something missing. So Paul digs a little deeper and he finds out what's going on here. So he has these litmus test kind of questions or diagnostic questions which expose very important things. In verse 2, Paul says to these disciples, there's 12 of them, by the way, because verse 7 says there's 12 of these guys. And so he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? What was Paul talking about? Paul was talking about what's already been clearly established in the book of Acts. Beginning back in Acts chapter 1, 
when Jesus rose from the dead, he's about to ascend into heaven. He gathered his apostles together and he told them, wait here for the promise. Do not go anywhere till the promise comes. What is the promise? It was the promise of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in fulfillment of Joel 2, that God would pour out his Holy Spirit on individual believers and that Holy Spirit would reside and literally live in believers, which he did not do in the Old Testament. That was the promise. Wait here for the promise. Wait here for the promise. And then he goes on to say, John, remember, John the baptizer, he baptized only with water for repentance. But the Holy Spirit will baptize you. It's going to be a spiritual. Jesus' baptism will be a baptism of the Holy Spirit, not with water. It's a special baptism that's coming. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Spirit of God comes to literally live in a Christian. The moment you believe in the gospel, you truly repent, and you are justified. In that moment, the Spirit of God puts the Spirit of God to live inside you as a Christian. And that Spirit of God will live in you until you die or until Jesus comes. Once you become a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. He will not leave. That's why Jesus could literally say to his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And literally he could say that it was because Jesus Christ is in you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you, not part of the Holy Spirit. The complete Holy Spirit lives in you. But I thought the Holy Spirit was infinite. Well, he is. Well, how does that work? I don't know. And Jesus lives in you. Jesus lives in me? Yes, Jesus lives. Well, I thought the Holy Spirit lives in me. Well, he does. Well, I thought Jesus was in heaven. Well, he is. I thought Jesus was in heaven in a physical body. Well, he is. But you said Jesus lives in me. Yes, he does. How is that possible? I have no idea. It's, it's a miracle. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's what the Bible says. I have no idea how that works. But Jesus Christ lives in me through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And because I'm a Christian, I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, infinite almighty God. That's awesome. And it is the literal presence of the Spirit of God. This was the promise of Jesus. When you believe in the gospel, believe in his death, that he died, that he was punished for your sin by God the Father when he was on the cross. Jesus died as your substitute because God hates sin. So he punished Jesus for all of your sin. And then he was buried and he literally rose again from the dead and he ascended on high and he is the Lord. And if you believe that and recognize you are a sinner, confess your sin and ask God to forgive you. And ask the Lord Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, and you believe that by faith through grace, God will change you. He will transform you. He will make you a Christian in that very moment of time. You are now born again. You're adopted into the family of God. You're forgiven of all of your sins. You're reconciled, and you are now a friend of God who used to be your enemy. And the Spirit of God is put in you to live in you all of your days here on earth. It's amazing. That is the gospel. That is Christianity. That is the blessed hope. And that is the promise that Jesus gave his disciples. When I leave and when I ascend, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And every time any person legitimately believes in the gospel, the Spirit of God will take up residence inside of them. That is the promise. That's what Paul meant when he said, when you got baptized, going back to that question, verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And he meant when you believed in the gospel. Paul was assuming that they knew about Jesus' work on the cross his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, Pentecost, and the pouring out of the Spirit. That was his litmus test. But these guys didn't know anything about any of that. So they said to him, uh, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Literally, what it's saying is, we have not heard about the Holy Spirit. What they were saying was, we have not heard that there's some kind of special dispensation or ministry of the Holy Spirit that has been given. What are you talking about, Paul? 
So they did not understand the fullness of the gospel. These guys were still stuck back in the time of John the Baptist. They're disciples of John the Baptist. So all they knew was the Old Testament is true. Yahweh was God. Yahweh sending a Messiah, a Savior. John the Baptist was a real guy, a prophet, and he's yelling, prepare the way of the Lord, repent of your sin, because behind me comes the Messiah. That's all they knew. That's all they heard. And they're living in Ephesus, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. Where in the world do these guys get the ministry or the message of John the Baptist? We don't know. It doesn't say. We do know that there were a lot of Jews in Ephesus. We do know there was a synagogue in Ephesus. So no doubt many of those Jews in the synagogue would go back on the three major feast days of the year in Jerusalem. And no doubt some of these went back during the time of John the Baptist's one-year ministry because John the Baptist was preaching around Jerusalem and around the temple. And he's got a real simple message. Be, repent and believe and be baptized for the Messiah is coming. It was a preparation ministry. John the Baptist didn't know the details. John the Baptist never witnessed the, resurrect, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, or the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist didn't see any of that. So it was a simple message. Repent. Identify with Israel. Identify with the Old Testament. The Messiah is coming. And that's the only message they had. So maybe these guys, these Jews who went to Jerusalem at these feasts, went back. Oh, there's, this pro- uh, there's a new prophet out, an Old Testament prophet. His name is John the Baptist, and here's what he said. And some of the people believed that. Some of the Jews did. And he's talking about a, a coming Messiah, a Jesus person. And so that's what these guys believed. They believed what they heard, but they didn't have all the information. So they knew of the Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't know of the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand that the Spirit of God could literally live inside of them. The Holy Spirit was around in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was ministering to God's people in the Old Testament. Occasionally, the Holy Spirit would come upon certain people, like a king or a priest or a prophet, but it was always transitory or momentary. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, the first king, and then left Saul. That had nothing to do with salvation. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit was, it's not talked about much in the Old Testament. It's sporadic. And there was a lot that was unknown. But they knew there was a Holy Spirit. But they didn't know about the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God that came as a result of believing in the gospel. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Look at John. Go to John chapter 7. Here's Jesus teaching in the middle of his ministry. He's teaching publicly. Massive crowds, no doubt, around him. Verse 37 says the crowd in verse 32. So there are crowds of people. People were questioning him, questioning his teaching. Some were intrigued. Some were questioning. Some were following. Some thought they wanted to identify with him. Judas thought at this time that, oh, I want to affiliate with this guy and follow him. He's going somewhere. I'm going to write in the coattails of this so-called Messiah. And Jesus says this in verse 30. This is a prophecy. John 7, verse 38 and 39. Jesus said, the one who believes in me, whoever believes in Jesus, what I teach, what I stand for, who I am, completely and fully, not just partially, as the scripture said, 
From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What in the world does that mean? If you believe in Jesus, then the living waters will be flowing within your soul, deep in your soul. What does that mean? Verse 39. Well, this Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive in the future. For the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There it is. The Spirit of God had not been given the way it is being given today. And these disciples of John the Baptist, they didn't realize that. They didn't know about it. So Paul fills them in. So let's go on to point number two. After this time of transition, where they gain a greater fullness and understanding of the meaning of baptism, that's point number two, the baptism of John versus the baptism of Jesus, which brought with it the promise of his pardon, Jesus' pardon, forgiveness of sin. Be baptized and you'll be forgiven of sin. Repent, believe, and... and be baptized, and you will be forgiven of sin. That was the promise of the gospel of Peter, of Paul, of the apostles. And so they get an education about the baptism. So verse 3, they hadn't even heard about this Holy Spirit, its unique ministry that came with the Messiah. So in verse 3, uh, Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? You guys said you were baptized. Maybe that's what happened when they interacted. Paul meets these guys. They love Yahweh. Maybe he met them at the synagogue. Oh, do you guys know Jesus? Oh, yeah, we know Jesus. Oh, cool. And he just makes all these assumptions. Yeah, we've even been baptized, they probably said, which was true. So now Paul's like, wait, you didn't receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What in the world? You said you got baptized. What baptism are you talking about? That's verse 3. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Oh, okay. Now the lights go on for Paul. I understand. Okay. So you got baptized uh, in obedience to John the Baptist's ministry that came before Jesus. And that was the limit of what they knew and believed. They did not have the fullness of the gospel. And John's baptism was different from Jesus' baptism. John's baptism was with literal water, and it was for repentance and identifying with Israel and the coming Messiah. Jesus' baptism was different. It isn't with water. It's a supernatural act that the Spirit of God does on the soul of a person instantaneously and adopting them into the family of God, the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 12. The moment you believe the gospel, the Spirit of God, invisibly yet in a real transaction, puts you in the body of Christ, the church. And you will never be separated from the church. That happened to you, that happened to me, those who believe in the gospel. Baptism means to be dunked, submerged, and metaphorically identified with. So the Holy Spirit of God identified us with the body of Christ at this spiritual baptism that was invisible as a result of believing in the gospel that is Jesus' baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the Messiah who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning Paul gave them the rest of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, the same way Aquila and Priscilla had to give the fullness of gospel to Apollos. And they embraced it. They had been prepared. They were ready to accept the Messiah. Yeah, we heard about it, Jesus. We knew he was coming. Really, he's already come? He died on the cross, and then Paul probably had to share with them Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Genesis 3.15, showing that the Messiah had to be crucified. He had to die. He had to be a substitute for sin. He had to absorb the holy wrath of God, that he had to be buried, that he had to rise again in light of Psalm 16, that he ascended on high, that he sent out his Holy Spirit on every believer who believes in the gospel in light of Joel 2 and many other passages. And when they heard that, they believed. 
when they heard that, they were born again. When they heard the fullness of the gospel, they were saved. Now they are bona fide Christians in the family of God, the body of Christ. So when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is the only time in the New Testament where we actually see somebody being rebaptized. I was baptized twice. I was baptized, uh, I remember it well. I was eight days old. And no, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't remember at all. Got a little sprinkle on my head. Boop, boop. And then I became a rebel through high school. Denied the name of Christ. Called myself an atheist. Didn't know the gospel. Somebody shared the gospel with me. I read the New Testament. Whoa. I need to get baptized the right way after believing. So I got baptized a second time. And that's what these men, they were humble. They knew. We didn't have the right information. We didn't get baptized uh, in the fullness of the gospel. We need to be out of obedience to the Lord Jesus being Christian. We need to get baptized. That takes courage. That takes belief. That takes humility sometimes. Sometimes people uh, haven't been baptized. They're Christians and they don't want to get baptized because uh, for a lot of fear, or they feel stupid because people are going to ask me, why did I put it off so long? <laughs> That's legit. I put it off for five years after getting saved and all kinds of other reasons. But we need to do it out of obe- obedience and love for the Lord. And that's what these men did. And I already uh, read to you the promise of the gospel where Peter and Paul throughout the book of Acts say, you need to repent of your sins, believe in the gospel, be baptized, you will be saved and you'll have forgiveness of sin. You'll have total pardon. That's the difference between John's baptism, which was just with water, and the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to, flip down your Old Testament, and go back to Jeremiah 31. If I were to ask you as a Christian, why do you have the Holy Spirit living in you? Where does that come from, that promise? Why is that? Why did God do that? Why did God decide to put the Spirit of God living in every Christian when they believe in the gospel? Where does that come from? Did Paul make that up? Did Jesus just make it up in his day? Did the apostles make it? Where does that come from? Did the New Testament introduce that idea? Why does the Spirit? Why did God put the Spirit of God living in you? And of course your answer would be, well, that was the promise of the New Covenant, right? This comes right out of the Old Testament. And that's Jeremiah 31, 31. This is like 550 years before Christ, the prophet Jeremiah. Israel, as God's people, have been totally disobedient, and God just came in and chastened them severely through pagan nations. They're about to go captive. Nevertheless, God won't forget his people. He makes a promise to Israel. Verse 31, Behold, days are coming. In the future declares the Lord Yahweh. By the way, we know from the book of Romans and Paul that Paul called Jesus Yahweh. That's interesting. The Father is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. They're not the same God. They're not the same person. I mean, they're the same God. They're not the same person. One God. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. With Israel. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus came as Savior through Israel. The apostles were all Jews. They were people of Israel. They started the church. That's why this promise applies to the church. It came through the conduit of Jewish people, a Jewish savior, Jewish apostles, Jewish scripture flowing out onto Gentiles, flowing out onto the cosmopolitan church. This promise is for the church, even though it's addressed historically to Israel and Judah. 
How do we know it applies to the church? Because Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is the covenant. This is the blood of my covenant of the new covenant. Every time you celebrate communion, you are celebrating the new covenant came right from here. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 38, 36. New covenant. I'm going to, I'm going to bring a new covenant. Like, uh, not like the old covenant under Moses, which I made with the fathers. This covenant will be different. It will supersede. It will be better. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days through the Messiah, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their heart. I'm going to change hearts. I'm going to soften hearts, transform hearts, save hearts when you're born again through the gospel. That's what he's talking about. It's not external. It's not legalistic. It's deep in the soul. It is real. It's life changing. When you become a Christian, that happened to you. Your heart was changed. You became a new creature in light of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Not only that, a new heart. Verse 34, here's another promise. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me by virtue of being born again, knowing Jesus Christ, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. So part of the promise of the new covenant recipients is, there it is, forgiveness of iniquity. Complete and total forgiveness for all of your sins at that one time true belief in the gospel. This was shocking to the Mosaic Jews. The Jews under the Mosaic covenant were never promised forgiveness of all of their sin, past, present, and future. It was, okay, you can be forgiven for this sin for now in light of that sacrifice you just offered, but guess what? You got to come back next year. And then get some more forgiveness. And then come back next year and get some more forgiveness. And on and on it went. This is complete and total forgiveness. This is the new covenant. That's why I put the promise of pardon, the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, believing in the gospel, being adopted into the family of God, the body of Christ, and complete and total forgiveness of all sin in light of the new covenant. And if you want to write down Ezekiel 36, 25 and following parallel passage. Or there in that passage, it says, I will also not only forgive your sin, I'm going to put my spirit within you. That was new. Amazing. This was the new covenant. So these 12 followers of John the Baptist, they're hearing these things for the first time. Wow. You mean, oh, yeah, I remember that new covenant. I had to memorize Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 in synagogue school when I was growing up. Oh, I hated doing that. I hated rote memorization. My mom, she made me do it. But now I understand how glorious. So they understand the fullness of the gospel in the new covenant. They embrace it. They're born again. They're saved. Point number three. And they become not just disciples. They are now Christians. Being a disciple versus being a Christian, the promise of his power. When you become a Christian, when you're born again, God gives you his Holy Spirit, and with that comes supernatural power that literally lives in you and lives in me if you have the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. Verse 6, going back to Acts 19. Verse 5 said, when they heard this, uh, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They believe the gospel now. They are completed. Verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands, so then Paul lays his hands on the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, Paul didn't always lay his hands on somebody that was believing the gospel and being converted. If you go through the book of Acts, you know, huh, he does it sometimes, he doesn't do it sometimes. Why is he doing it here? Well, one thing that is consistent throughout the book of Acts is the, the three or four times where the apostles, either Peter 
John or Paul lay their hands on a group of believers. And what's consistent about every time they do that, it's a new group of believers. The first group that got saved were all Jews in the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. They're all Jews. They all got saved and became Christians. Next time around, Acts chapter 8, then there's Samaritans actually get saved. They're half Jewish. They're like mutts. The Jews can't stand the Samaritans. They hate the Samaritans. They're despised people, yet they believe in the gospel. They get saved through the ministry of Philip. Philip's telling everybody, the apostles are like, wait a minute. And the Jews down in Jerusalem who are Christians, what? The Samaritans got saved? No way. We're not letting them in. This is an all Jewish church. It has been for five years. We're going to keep it that way. Peter and John, "Mm, not necessarily. Let's go check it out. So they go and they watch the ministry among the Samaritans and, and Peter and John, the apostles, they verify, they validate. Indeed, these half-breeds, these Samaritans truly believed in the gospel. They are truly children of God. They are truly a part of the church. They truly belong into the body of Christ. We need to show solidarity with them publicly as the leaders of the church. And so Peter and John, they lay hands on these disparate groups of believers like the Samaritans like the Gentiles and Cornelius in Acts 10, and like these, this new group of people, these disciples of John the Baptist that are still around after 20 years. And so that was what... The laying on of hands didn't mystically impart the Spirit of God. The laying on of hands came from the Old Testament. Ordination is what it's called. It's, just, it's a public testimony that we affirm you, you are a part of us, you have our blessing. They laid hands on Paul when they sent him off on his missionary journey. They laid hands on elders, the whole church, as identifying with them as the leaders of the church. And that's what he's doing. You belong to the body of Christ, even though you're Johnny-come-latelys and you're following John the Baptist. You're no different than anybody else. You don't have to go through a special door. Just believe in the gospel. That's what the apostles did. That's why it was so important. This had to be done. The apostles had to bring unity early on into the church of Christ. Otherwise, they would have disunity moving forward. So that's what he's doing. He laid his hands upon them. The Holy Spirit of God came upon them as he did at Pentecost and a couple other times after that. They were saved, and when the Spirit came upon them, they received spiritual gifts. When you become a Christian, you receive a spiritual gift, maybe more, maybe a combination of different gifts. We talked about that in Corinthians, and so did they. And that was manifest there. These 12 men were gifted by God uniquely with the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. We talked about that in Corinthians. It's a, it was a real gift. Paul had this gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, it was the ability to speak a foreign language that you had never studied and you didn't know. And then God gave you the ability to actually speak that language to a people group that knew that language. And you, you preach biblical truth to them in that language. And hopefully you had an interpreter who could interpret it for everybody who's listening so it doesn't sound like mumbo-jumbo and babble. So you have speaking tongues, a legitimate gift. It's given a few times throughout the book of Acts, and it's given to these men selectively by God. He gives them the gift of speaking in tongues. He also gives them the gift of prophesying. Prophecy in the New Testament and the Old Testament is always the ability to give new information, new revelation to the people. And that's what they were able to do. So... Some of these men became prophets in the early church. They don't have the whole New Testament. And so God is literally speaking through these men on occasion to other Christians to to build them up and give them biblical truth. It's kind of interesting. These gifts balance each other. There's things that are same about them. There are things that complement, and there are things that are very different. 
uh, the gift of tongues was inferior to prophecy. We know that from Corinthians. Prophecy was the preferred gift. We also know that not every Christian received these two gifts. We also know from 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul predicted both of these gifts would be done away with and would cease, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 and following, and they have. These two gifts have not existed throughout the history of the church after the days of the apostles. Both of these gifts were revelatory, divine revelation, and with. but here's our divine revelation today. It's in the Bible. We don't need ongoing divine revelation. We don't need new truth. Why, why is that? Well, it's real simple. If somebody comes along and says, oh, God spoke to me. Jesus appeared to me in a dream last night, and he gave me some new information. He gave me new truth. Immediately, I'm taking out my Bible and say, okay, what is it? Well, here's the new truth. Now, if the new truth contradicts something in the Bible, it's not truth. It's error. The second test is, if the new truth coincides with what's in the Bible, you don't need it. It's superfluous because God already said it right here. Jesus appeared to me in a vision, and he spoke truth to me. And hear ye, I will prophesy. God told me in a dream last night that God would never destroy the world in a flood. Thus saith the Lord. You laugh, but people have done this. I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. That's not new information. God told us that in the Bible. You're like uh, 3,000 years late. That's not new information. Well, I saw, it in, I saw it in a dream. Well, I believe you did. It's very possible. Well, how'd that happen? Well, because you were probably you know, reading your Bible or in Sunday school when you were in third grade, and then you had a dream about what happened in Sunday school or what you read in the Bible. That's where it came. That's what dreams are. Dreams are dangerous. Dreams are fun. Dreams are interesting. Dreams can be dangerous. So that's these gifts. Gifts, and you have been given gifts. If you're, if you're a Christian, you've been given the Spirit of God. Uh, you've been given spiritual gifts to help edify the body. Oh, one other interesting footnote about uh, tongues and prophecy. It is, what is the purpose of tongues? Tongues is a sign for unbelievers. That's 1 Corinthians 14. Tongues is as a sign for unbelievers. Where does that come from? The book of Isaiah. God predicted in the book of Isaiah 700 years before the church telling Israel... In the future, this gift will come, the speaking in tongues, and it will be a sign for unbelieving Jews. Did you know that every time tongues is spoken in the book of Acts, there's an audience of unbelieving Jews? And that is to confirm God is truly moving. God is doing what he said he is doing. So... Tongues was a public sign of a real language instantly given as a sign for unbelieving Jews who might be in the audience in keeping with Scripture. Very clear. Paul is very clear about this. And so tongues is for unbelievers who might be there. Prophecy is for believers. They complement one another perfectly. And Paul said that when tongues is interpreted, it is the equivalent of prophecy for all who hear and then verse 7 says, there were in all about 12 men. Let's close with Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Speaking of transitions, so what things do apply to me in the book of Acts and what things don't apply to me? That's a great question. And that, that has to do with your hermeneutic, how you interpret the Bible. So be careful when you're studying the book of Acts. And don't read the book of Acts thinking first and foremost, how does this apply to me? What am I going to get out of this? It's not about you. It's not about me. When we read the book of Acts, we, just, we should just be in... It's like looking at the Grand Canyon and just 
basking in the glory and the awesomeness of it, not, well, what's the Grand Canyon going to do for me? It has no glory until... And then you take a selfie with your head in the Grand Canyon in the background, as though the Grand Canyon had no significance until you stuck your head in there. And that's, what pe- that's how some people approach the Bible. This isn't pertinent until I'm involved. It's not relevant until I can figure out how to apply it to myself. No. This is God's living word that first and foremost puts his glory on display for our awe, for our worship. So how do I apply the book of Acts? Believe it, worship God with every passage, with every verse. But looking at verse 8, there's some continuity and discontinuity. There's a transition here. There's some of these truths apply to us, some don't. Paul said to the apostles, we were not there. But this is what he said. You apostles will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But it wasn't just the apostles. It was the other people who made up the 120. So it was all believers, included women, as all those who believed in the gospel. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon belief is a transcendent, universal, ongoing principle for every Christian. That's awesome. So when you believed... The Spirit of God came upon you. Not only that, what Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses. We're called to be witnesses for Christ, both in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria. And the first part there, verse 8, but when you receive the... Oh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's what I wanted to highlight there. So you want something personal to take away from God's Word in light of this truth is just reminisce, reflect, pray upon, be thankful to God that if you are a Christian, you've embraced the gospel, you're truly born again, then He has given you of His Spirit. That is amazing, that is awesome, and that you have the resident power of God living in you, the same Holy Spirit, the same power that created the world out of nothing and that raised Jesus from the dead. As a Christian, you are power-packed with the amazing Spirit of God. That's why our prayers prayers can be so efficacious and powerful. Just just pray for things that people wouldn't even think praying for, walking by faith, and just let God do His work. It's awesome. He deserves all the glory. And in light of that, let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father for the glorious gospel, for the opportunity to know Christ, and for that precious gift of the Spirit who lives in all who believe. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the special day it was uh, in light of Father's Day. Help our fathers continue to be with them. And God, thank you for the opportunity to go through the book of Acts to see what you did in history. to appreciate things that can't be repeated, miraculous things you did for our good, laying the foundation of the church and then ongoing blessings that we're able to receive as well. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.